Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice, and I'm glad you could be with us for this event. Uh, today, we want to welcome Brian Aiken back to Cato uh, to give a talk on his new book, uh, The Blue Tent Sky, How the Left's War on Guns Cost Me My Son and My Freedom. Now, this book relates a horrendous nightmare uh, encounter with the American criminal justice system. Uh, Brian will tell the story in a moment, but I want to set this up uh, very briefly with the bare-bone facts of, of what happened. Uh, Brian was in the process of moving from Colorado to New Jersey. While he lived in Colorado, he purchased several firearms uh, legally. And he knew uh, as he was planning his move that there might be different rules between what Colorado has on the books and what uh, New Jersey regulations on firearms. Uh, there might be different rules in New Jersey. So he went about trying to find out what those differences might be. But as it turned out, uh, he was arrested by New Jersey police in the driveway uh, of his parents' home. And, and then the nightmare begins, uh, losing his parental visitation rights with his son. And then he is sent off to a New Jersey penitentiary for these violations. At every turn, Brian believed that once the authorities uh, heard his explanation and heard the circumstances of his case, that the charges against him would be quickly dropped. Uh, but he was unable to persuade the police officers on the scene. And in the days right after, you would think that maybe the police supervisors, once they heard the circumstances of the case, that the charges would be dropped. That did not happen. And then the case moves along through the system. And uh, the, when the prosecutors learn the circumstances, they do not drop the charges. And the case continues to move through the system. And uh, you would think that the, once the judge heard all the circumstances of the case, that he would dismiss all the charges. But, but it just didn't happen. It really is a, a nightmare of a story when you hear uh, all of the details. Most people would not believe that this kind of uh, incident could happen in America. But it does happen much more often than people realize. Uh, but by spreading the word in forums like this, uh, we can make more people aware of the way in which the system operates, the way the system fails, and we can change the way in which the government operates. Our format today is going to be very simple. Brian will tell us his story and the thesis of his book. Uh, after that, I will introduce my colleague, Walter Olson, who will uh, offer comments on the case. Uh, we will then take your questions before we adjourn for a luncheon upstairs. Uh, before we begin, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now to quickly double check and make sure that they are either turned off or, or silenced so we won't have uh, any interruptions uh, as we get underway here. Thank you. Okay, without any further ado, would you please welcome the author of The Blue Tent Sky, Mr. Brian Aiken. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming today. I had to uh, amend my uh, usual speech because it goes on for about 60 minutes if I just keep talking. I can always think of something more egregious to let everyone know about. Uh, but I trimmed it down, and so I have notes. So for the first time, I'll actually be looking up and down at my notes to keep me on track. Uh, before diving in, I'd like to thank the Cato Institute and Tim Lynch for having me back at Cato uh, to share my story with you. 
it's an important story, I think, because it's not a hypothetical. Uh, this actually happened to me, and it happens to a lot more people than you might think. Right now, there are over 100 cases being reviewed by prosecutors in the state of New Jersey, all related to individuals who are either in prison or awaiting trial for illegal possession of firearms without a concealed carry permit. On January 2nd, 2009, I was driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, headed north from my parents' house, when I got a call on my cell phone. I was headed to my new apartment in Hoboken and had just gotten in, in an argument with my mother about how I needed to borrow money for a custody lawyer. Looking down at the phone, I saw my mom was calling me. I answered, but it wasn't my mom on the other line. It was a police officer. After I had left my parents' house, where I had been living for a few days, my mom called 911 and hung up the phone. She was worried about me, just enough to call the police, but knew better and hung up before anyone answered. It was too late, though. The police traced the call and responded to an abandoned 911 call. The, the officer wanted to know what was going on. I was going through a custody battle with my wife and had just moved from Colorado to New Jersey to be closer to my son. 3,000 miles, had put the house up for sale, had left my job, all because my wife and my son had moved back to New Jersey and I wanted to be closer to him. For the past four weeks, my wife had been withholding custody of my son. The previous week was Christmas, and on the day of my visitation, my mom and I waited for hours outside of the Ocean County Courthouse, waiting for my wife to show up with my son, and she never came. Like with many acrimonious divorces, my son was being used as a poker chip, uh, and if I gave her the uh, financial demands that she wanted, I would be able to see my son, but I wasn't even in a position to meet those demands, especially not with paying a mortgage on a house in Colorado, being 24 years old, only a few months out of college, and now having to pay rent on a newly acquired apartment in Hoboken. I simply didn't have the money. The officer on the phone wanted to know what was going on, and he wanted to know if I was suicidal, and I told him I wasn't. He asked if I felt like I was going to hurt anyone else, and I said, no, uh, I'm going through a really rough divorce, and I really want to see my son. But earlier today, I got another text message from my wife letting me know that she was canceling my visitation for the fourth week in a row. And when I got to my mom's house to pack up my car, I told my mom I needed help, and she told me that my parents were just financially unable to help me. They had already invested $30,000 in my custody battle, and the well was dry. When I left, I said some things that I shouldn't have said, and I got in the car after packing it up floor to ceiling with everything that I owned, pots and pans, dishes, clothes, books, uh, rock and ice climbing gear, including 400 feet of climbing rope and several ice axes. And when I got that phone call, the police officer asked me to turn around and come back to my parents' house because he wanted to check me for bruises. And he said, anytime we get a call, a domestic call, we're worried that there might be violence, so we want to make sure that you haven't been assaulted. And I imagined him standing next to my 105-pound mother probably the most caring person in the world, and thought that was just about the most disingenuous thing I've ever heard 
in order to get somebody to come back to the scene of a non-crime. And uh, I told him I hadn't been assaulted, I didn't have any bruises, and asked him if I was legally required to come back. And he said, no, you're not legally required to, but we'd really like you to come back. And I said, well, since I'm not legally required to, I'm not going to. And we, we said goodbye and got off the phone. About a minute later, I got a second phone call. And it was the police officer again. But I could tell this time that something had changed. And he told me, listen, Brian, we've issued a statewide general alert. And all of the police departments in the state of New Jersey are on the search for your make and model of car. If you don't come back, we're going to pick you up and bring you back. So as a 24-year-old kid, I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be an O.J. Simpson-style manhunt. There's going to be helicopters and police cars looking for me, and this is just an absolute nightmare and the absolute last thing that I need, especially when my primary goal right now is to try and get custody of my son back. And that's when I made probably the biggest mistake of the past five years and I turned around and drove back to my parents' house. I wasn't a suspect in a crime. There was no probable cause for the police to, uh, to apprehend me. Uh, I had done nothing wrong at, at that point. And I turned back and thought, maybe I can just talk to them and we can clarify everything, and then I'll be able to go home. And when I got back to my parents' house, the first thing out of the cop's mouth was, where are your guns? It wasn't even, do you own guns? It was, where are they? After the police had arrived at my parents' house, my parents had talked to the police officers, and the police officers knew that I was a gun owner, but they didn't know because my mom had no idea. She had never, ever seen my guns, and she hadn't seen them on that day, uh, so she didn't know if I had them on me, and that's what the police officers wanted to know. And the police officers interrogated me for about three hours, I wasn't Mirandized, I wasn't free to leave, and when they asked to search my car, I asked again if I was legally obligated to because I preferred for them not to. It's not that I had any illegal contraband in the car, I just didn't want you know, police officers going through my entire car, especially after I spent three and a half hours packing it. And they told me uh, that if I didn't consent, they would place me on a 72-hour psychiatric hold at a psych hospital. I have no criminal history, no mental health problems, and that as a process of that, they would have to impound my car and itemize all of the possessions inside of the car. So one way or another, they were going to search my car. So for the second time that night, I took the easy way out and I signed the consent form and allowed them to search the car. I shouldn't have done that. In retrospect, I probably should, should have taken a hard line and said, there's no probable cause, I haven't done anything wrong. If you guys were worried about me or my mother or my family, uh, you could have had an ambulance here, you could have called a crisis intervention center, you could have had a social worker here, you could have done any number of things, but clearly you didn't think that I was truly a risk to myself or anyone else because you never did any one of those things. The only thing that you ever asked was, where are my guns? While I'm there, I tried convincing them that my firearms were not illegally possessed, and so I told them about a phone call that I had with the New Jersey State Police three days earlier when I asked the state police 
how do I move firearms from one house to another because I'm coming in from Colorado and I want to make sure that I do everything legally. And they told me that they didn't really believe me pretty much and that they weren't familiar with the exemptions that I was talking about, the exemptions that say bringing firearms from one house to another is legal without a concealed carry permit under these exemptions. It was their position that A, guns had to be registered in the state of New Jersey, which is not the truth, and that when you're transporting firearms, unless you're going hunting into the shooting range, you have to have a concealed carry permit. But one of the police officers on the scene believed me, and so he took the guns and he brought them up to my parents' house and he actually handed the guns back to my father. And he said, if you can put these back in the safe, Brian can come back tomorrow morning and get them after things have cooled down. And so my dad went back into the house and after a few minutes passed, my dad showed back up to the front door. At this time, my dad and I were both really trusting individuals. We really trusted the police department. My uncle, my dad's brother, had been a uh, Philadelphia police officer for 23 years and was the firearms instructor at the Philadelphia Police Academy. And in, in fact, he, he taught several mem members of my family how to shoot handguns. And my grandfather, who was a designated marksman in World War II, was actually the person who taught me how to shoot a rifle. So it's not like I didn't know how to responsibly handle firearms. I wasn't walking around with firearms tucked into my waistband or, or making threats to anybody. They were locked and unloaded in the trunk of my car. And yeah, I, I was a responsible gun owner. In fact, the reason why my mom said that she had no idea if I had my guns on me was because if I was moving guns, I moved them discreetly. Uh, and she had never seen them. Well, my dad returned to the front door with my guns in his hand and said to the officer, they don't fit, what else can we do? And about a minute later, they called to the supervisor back at the police department and the supervisor said, well, just arrest him then. After three hours of being interrogated and having my car searched, I was arrested for illegal possession of unregistered firearms. And while I was handcuffed to a bench at the Mount Laurel Police Department, I let them know that that's actually not a crime in the state of New Jersey because there's no registration law. And so they amended the charge to illegal possession of firearms and added two others, illegal possession of high capacity magazines, which were standard capacity magazines issued directly from the manufacturer with the gun, and illegal possession of hollow point ammunition, which the Trentonian later called cop killer bullets in an article they wrote about me. I spent the weekend in county jail and posted bail for $10,000 on that Monday. One of the reasons that the police officer put down on his bail form as a reason for the judge not to grant me any bail was my length in the community. And he noted that I had just moved, moved to New Jersey less than a week earlier. But eventually when I went to trial, the judge would ignore that and the police officer would conveniently forget that I had just moved there. Mm -hmm. We tried making the argument the entire time that I met all of these exemptions uh, for how I was supposed to transport the firearms and how, uh, and that I did not need a concealed carry permit. Um, but the prosecutor didn't seem to care and the judge certainly didn't. In a pretrial motion, we, uh, we tried to prove that my Fourth Amendment rights had been violated when the cops called me that second time and coerced me to come back to the, to the scene of my parents' house 
without suspecting me of any sort of crime. And there, I mean, I, there were no, no crime had been committed at all. Um, so there was no probable cause to either ask me to come back under threat of arrest or to even search my car. But I came back anyway because I thought that, that they could arrest me. I thought that they had that power, and they do. We lost that motion, uh, motion to suppress the evidence, um, and again, the motion to dismiss the case, and eventually went to trial. Before trial, two things happened. A family court judge decided that because I was charged with these crimes, I was no longer fit to be my son's father. He found that gun owners provided an unsafe environment for children, and even though it was a violentless and victimless charge, that he wasn't convinced that I couldn't own firearms if I wanted to. And so he effectively took my son away from me. He did this by saying that I could only see my son under certain conditions, only under the direct supervision of a police officer for one hour a week on weekdays in a room reserved at the Ocean County Courthouse. None of those things have ever aligned over the past five years. And in five years, I have not seen my son. Even after I was released from prison, I filed a motion for reconsideration to the family court judge. And I signed, uh, and, and I showed a signed commutation order signed by the governor of New Jersey. And I said to the family court judge as I was representing myself pro se, which simply means by my, on my own without a lawyer. Uh, I said, if there was any concern about me being a threat to anyone, this should, be, this should alleviate all concerns because there's absolutely no way a governor who was a federal prosecutor and who many people think have presidential ambitions would grant me executive clemency if he thought that I was a criminal or that I was going to do something that would reflect poorly on him. Uh, and the judge said, as far as I'm concerned, you're still a convicted felon, and the governor's involvement in this has nothing to do with anything, and it doesn't change my mind. And he didn't change the custody situation, and so I still am unable to see my son. But before that happened, I went to trial. And it was obvious that the argument that we were making was that I was moving from one house to another, and in the state of New Jersey, there are the exemptions that allow for individuals to transport firearms and ammunition, hollow point ammunition, from the place of purchase to your house, from your house to go hunting, from your house to go to the shooting range, and in the case of firearms, from one house to another. And we spent a very long time discussing these exemptions. The prosecutor talked about the exemptions. The police officer testified that I was moving. My roommate testified that I was moving. Uh, actually, every witness testified that I was moving. But every time that we tried to present evidence that supported that, the, the judge denied it. We had closing documents from the sale of my house in Colorado that sold 11 days after I was arrested, and he refused uh, for that to be admitted. He also tried to refuse uh, the admission of the phone call that I had with the New Jersey State Police asking them how I transport firearms legally in the state of New Jersey. And finally, when he instructed the jury on how to deliberate, he told them they were only allowed to consider whether or not I possessed firearms, something that I never denied, and told them that if they were convinced that I did own firearms and that I ha had possessed them, that they must find me guilty because I was guilty of illegal possession of firearms. Uh, 
And we objected to that because there were the exemptions and the jury is supposed to be charged on what these exemptions are, specifically the state exemptions, but also the Federal Firearm Owners Protection Act that allows an individual to tra travel from one place where firearms are legal to another place where firearms are, are also legal, unmolested by police officers. And the judge at first said, well, I think that the two exemptions are redundant. I don't think that the jury needs to know about both of them. So instead of giving them the Federal Firearm Owners Protection Act and the state exemptions, we'll just give them the state exemptions. And then a few minutes later, he decided that he wasn't going to give them the state exemptions either. So they were only allowed to consider if I had guns. And if I had them, I was guilty of a second degree felony. And the punishment for that is five to 10 years incarceration with a mandatory minimum of 36 months behind bars. That has since been amended to 42 months in prison as a mandatory minimum. And that's what Shanine Allen, if you've heard about Shanine's case, that's what she was facing. Well, the jury thought this was a, a bit of a sham and they came back and asked the judge for the exemptions. They pretty much said, how can we spend this entire trial talking about what these exemptions are? And then when we go to deliberate, you tell us we're not allowed to consider what they are. And the, the judge sent the jury back to, back to uh, the deliberation spot and the prosecutor and my attorney had a conversation with the judge about what they should do. And the prosecutor told the judge, well, clearly I think you've got a very perceptive jury and you need to be more stern and tell them that you are the judge and you are the law and you're telling them as a matter of law that they're not allowed to consider any exemptions. And my lawyer made the obvious case that the jury wants the exemptions. They're the trier of facts. They need to know what these exemptions are. Otherwise, you're not letting them do their job. Give them the exemptions and let them do their job. And the judge said, well, no, I think, I think the prosecutor's right. I think I have determined as a matter of law that they're not allowed to know what the exemptions are. So I'm going to tell them that they, uh, they need to disregard any exemptions that they think might exist or that do exist. And if they think that Brian possessed firearms, they must find him guilty. And they came back a second time. And that request reads, why did you make us aware at the start of trial that the law allows a person to carry a weapon if the person is moving or going to a shooting range and during the trial, both the defense and prosecution presented testimony as to whether or not the defendant was in the process of moving. And then in your charge for us to deliberate, we are not permitted to take into consider consideration whether or not we believe the defendant was moving. But the judge refused again. Three times they came back practically begging for these exemptions, and all three times they were denied. The fourth time they came back and found me guilty. Later, one of the jurors would send me an email and we would talk back and forth. And he told me he was worried about what kind of repercussions he would face, if there would be retaliation, if they tried to nullify the judge, the judge's instructions. He was worried that if they did what they thought was right, and that was find me not guilty, that the judge would retaliate and somehow hold them in contempt. And that was why he told me they found me guilty. My sentencing should have been only a month later, but it took two months because they had to find a replacement judge. Two weeks after my trial, uh, Governor Christie declined to reappoint the judge to his life sentence. 
this has pretty much nothing to do with my case and uh, allegedly is related to two other cases. One which I'll, I'll speak about very briefly because it's interesting to note what's legal in New Jersey and what's illegal in New Jersey. In one case that my judge, Judge Morley, presided over, a police officer in Morristown, New Jersey, was uh, caught on video receiving oral sex from cows. And the prosecutor said, well, there's a problem here. Uh, you know, we'd like to charge this police officer and get him off the police force because that's, you know, there's something wrong here. And they found out that bestiality is not actually illegal in the state of New Jersey. So they couldn't charge him with bestiality. So the prosecutor said, okay, well, we'll charge him with animal abuse then, animal cruelty. And they moved forward with that. And during uh, a pretrial motion, the judge wasn't convinced that, uh, that you could prove that the cows didn't enjoy it. How could you prove that it was cruel? <laughs> and so the charges against the police officer were dismissed. And then he was, that same police officer went on to rack up, I think, 42 charges of sexually abusing and molesting underage girls and was ultimately found guilty, I believe, of 18 of them. So those are the kinds of people that this particular judge went out of his way to protect, and I'm the exact kind of person he went out of his way to make sure was convicted. Ultimately, I was sentenced to seven years in prison. The mandatory minimum was 36 months, so that means before I could even be eligible for parole, I had to serve three years in prison for a nonviolent and victimless crime. And I spent four months bouncing between state prisons before several hundred thousand people signed petitions, made phone calls to their senators, and even on one day crashed the lines to Governor Christie's office asking for the governor to release me from prison. And on December 20th, 2010, Governor Christie signed my commutation order and released me from prison six years and eight months early. The, uh, the four months that I spent in prison are things that I don't really enjoy talking about, but uh, I touch on them in, in the book as, as much as possible. Several chapters are dedicated to that time in my life. Um, but it's difficult to talk about what the consequences are uh, when you look at the experience of spending four months and preparing your entire life for the reality that it will probably be four or five years before you get out of prison. So mentally preparing yourself to, to get ready to go to prison, where the prison that I was sentenced to uh, was primarily known for sexual deviance uh, pedophiles and rapists, and then other individuals who couldn't be in general population. So uh, there was the occasional entertaining NBA athlete or soccer player, uh, or even police officer or judge who couldn't be in general population. But for the most part, these were rapists and pedophiles. And in some ways, uh, I was told that I was lucky that I was sent there and not to, say, um, Bayview which has uh, a reputation for where all the young kids go to uh, 
prove themselves and kill kids to get initiated into gangs. So in a lot of ways, they, were, they told me that I was lucky to be surrounded by pedophiles and not actually at one of these other prisons. It's also difficult because in addition to that, there's not even a conversation that I can have with my son whose birthday is only a couple months from now on February 15th and who I haven't been able to see for his, since his first birthday, which is coming up on five years now. And I'm afraid that all he knows is that his father is a felon and his father is disinterested in him and doesn't love him. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But the state of New Jersey specifically does not care about law-abiding gun owners. In fact, the attorney general in 2008 issued a directive, and I think that directive was why the police officers, the prosecutor, and the judge were so adamant about getting me incarcerated and putting me in jail. But she issued a directive to all of the prosecutors saying that anyone caught with a gun, regardless of whether they have a criminal history or if they have malicious intent, should be prosecuted uniformly and vigorously. And that simply meant that the person who was a, a gangbanger and had just held up a gas station and killed somebody was supposed to be tried just as severely as I was for having firearms locked and unloaded in the trunk of my car. And in fact, my mom, someone who's worked for the Burlington County Family Support Organization, knows several violent felons who have no problem seeing their son. Uh, and here I am, uh, an individual they consider to be the poster child for Second Amendment rights, which I think is interesting because before January of 2009, I was a very recreational gun user. And in fact, since January 2nd, 2009, I haven't even held a gun. So it's, it's interesting that they've decided to attack me and prosecute me in this way uh, when I was really just a recreational gun owner who purchased firearms to defend his family and defend his son. And as the ultimate punishment, they've taken him away from me. And a lot of people believe that there has to be more to the story or that this never really happens. This is an isolated case. But as I said earlier, over 100 cases right now are being reviewed by prosecutors because with the light that has been shined on the state of New Jersey, not just because my case, but more recently because of Shanine Allen's case, who was being prosecuted for very similar charges, illegal possession of hollow point ammunition and illegal possession of a firearm, even though she had a concealed carry permit in the state of Pennsylvania. She was pulled over in the state of New Jersey and ultimately arrested. And she found herself in the same position I did, where we were just at the end of our rope and we had really nothing left to lose. So we went public with our stories. But most people have a lot to lose. And I, I spent a long time before I actually went public thinking about how my clients might act, how my friends might act, how my family members might act, how the community at my church might act and respond to this news that I was being indicted on three felonies, firearms charges, as if I was a gun smuggler or providing guns to a gang. And so I stayed quiet. And most of these other individuals stay quiet too. But just because they stay quiet doesn't mean that they're not being prosecuted as well. 
And I'm, it's unfortunate this is such a, a hidden story because it happens so often that I get about 12 emails a month from different people that it's happening to, either family members of people that it's happening to or the individuals themselves. And they wanna know what to do because they're scared and they don't wanna take the plea deal and the plea deal is always the same. A five-year sentence with a one-year mandatory minimum. And they think, should I, if I didn't do anything wrong, should I fight these charges or should I just take the one year? I, I don't know what to do. And I, I try telling them they made that same offer to me 12 times. 12 times they made that plea offer. The judge made the plea offer. The judge told me that I had guns in New Jersey, I was guilty, and I was going to go to jail. And he said these things six months before we even went to trial, six months before there was even testimony about my case or evidence presented. And I think it's uh, emblematic of the problem in New Jersey, but also that they re recognize the problem and that they don't want to have to prosecute these people publicly because they know that if they have to pr prosecute these people publicly, and if cases like mine and Shanine Allen's and Guy Ackerman make the news, then all of a sudden they come across as these overbearing prosecutors and an overzealous police state. So if there's anything that we can learn from this, it's that ultimately the laws need to be reformed. But in the meantime, I think a great thing to do if you find yourself in a similar position is to refuse the plea deal. If you haven't done anything wrong and you haven't committed a crime, there's no reason to say that you have. There's no reason to have a felony on your record. There's no willing to cop out to something you didn't do. And for Shanine and I, that was a matter not only of personal integrity, but she has two young sons and I have one as well. And for us, it was a matter of thinking, what would our kids think about us if we copped out to this felony that we didn't actually commit? How would they look at us? Is that the kind of father that I wanna be? Shanine didn't think it was the kind of mother she wanted to be. Unfortunately, all my son has right now is this book because I'm not able to be in his life on a daily basis and teach him what I think it's supposed to be like to be a man of principles and values and ideals or high integrity. So I had to write this book and I hope that I'll be able to see him sooner, but if not, I know one day he'll be able to pick up the book and know that I haven't stopped loving him and that in many ways, I fought this fight for him. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, we're now gonna hear some remarks from my colleague, Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow here at Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, Walter uh, served as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and his writings have appeared in all the major newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, um, uh, the New York Post as well. Uh, he's written several books on our legal system, including Schools for Misrule, uh, The Excuse Factory, and, and The Litigation Explosion. He's also the founder uh, and a writer at a very popular legal blog called overlawyered.com. Uh, Please welcome Walter Olson. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Brian Aitken, for coming today. And 
um, the blurbs are right, the blurbs on the back cover. Um, this book is heartbreaking, it is outrageous, it is searing, it is incredible. Uh, it is a very personal book, as you will find when you read it. It's a book uh, based on a lot of anger, uh, anger that is completely understandable, considering what Mr. Aitken has gone through. It is a prison memoir, in part, and <clears throat> I don't read very many prison memoirs because I know my limits. Uh, they are strong stuff. Uh, when we talk about prison memoirs in this country, it's as apt to be something like Les Miserables or uh, Ballad of Reading Jail, something safely in the past, and yet the United States generates potentially a million of them, and I don't use the word million lightly. The USA imprisons 707 per 100,000 of its citizens. Uh, you may have heard some of the statistics for other countries, but uh, we are, of course, uh, right at the very top among major countries. Um, if you turn to the average developed country in the OECD, it is between 100 and 150. Uh, it's in the low hundreds for Canada, Australia, and so forth. You get to the countries that you think of as very dangerous places to be, and you find that El Salvador is all the way up to 424, uh, Cuba and Russia around 500, we in the United States at 700. That's how many people uh, could write prison memoirs in this country, uh, a million or more. And yet, paradoxically, it was the last third of the book uh, on the prison experience that I found actually uh, the easiest part to read because it was the part at which things began to go in the right direction. The first two thirds, it's the legal system doing its thing. And I know from having been writing on it my whole life uh, just how bad it can be. And I was nodding my head as the uh, judge misbehaved and the prosecutors uh, acted like machines and, and all the other things happened. And then suddenly something very, very different happens in the last uh, third of the book, which is he goes public. The Philadelphia Daily News, a tabloid, writes it up and you know, I don't know how many times I thought as I went through this, thank heaven for the talk show hosts, thank heaven for the tabloids, thank heavens for the unrespectable media, because if it had been left up to the respectable media, who knows whether you would have been here today. Um, <clears throat> Judge Napolitano at Fox News made it a personal cause. Uh, the libertarians jumped in, and you know that things are on the right track when that happens. Um, Clark, Clark Neely, um, our dear friend at the Institute for Justice, and many others, the hundreds of letters uh, began coming into the prison, the hundreds of thousands of signatures uh, on the petitions. And uh, because it is so unusual, this is a story that especially, don't, don't abandon the book partway through because it can get so depressing, because this is something you won't often see, is people coming together to, make the, to, to write an injustice. Well, and yet we've got that first two thirds of the book that landed him there. Um, and the question that has to arise is, how typical is this story anyway? We know, in fact, that it's very atypical in many ways. Um, how many cases where someone lands in prison, have they actually called law enforcement to, uh, you know, to <clears throat> try to figure out what the rules were so that they could obey them? A precious few. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it is an outlier case. It's a very unusual case. And yet, I would submit, and I'm going to go through a series of these points, that in policy terms, so much of what happens in this book is di different in degree, yes, very different in degree, but not necessarily different in kind from the experience that many other people go through. 
in white collar crime, for example, it's really not that unusual for someone to be hit with criminal charges over business activities, even though they've got a compliance staff that did look into the issue on point and did try to give advice about whether or not they were behaving legally. Uh, that yes, that does happen. Um, <clears throat> the plea bargain uh, uh, that he was offered, the plea bargain that most people take, um, is unfortunately a very, very typical part of the system. Uh, Mr. Aitken cites figures in his book about how more than 95% of cases result in plea bargains. Most people yield, and in particular, a lovely study that was done at Florida Institute of Technology, I believe, in which students were put through a simulation. They weren't told what the test was actually about. They weren't told what the study was actually about. But instead, they were maneuvered into a situation where they clearly had not done a particular kind of misbehavior in carrying out the experiment. Uh, they were accused of it anyway, and then they were handed the college equivalent of a plea bargain in which if they admitted guilt, there would be very light consequences. And if they denied guilt, then it would go to the administration of the college and various bad things could potentially happen unless they could prove that they were right. How many do you think took the uh, <coughs> experimental equivalent of a plea deal and were willing to swear to their own guilt? 56%. And I'm surprised it wasn't higher there. It, probably some of them had caught on that it was just an experiment. So yes, you have people pleading guilty every single day to things that they don't believe they were guilty on, things in some cases they would have won acquittals on. Uh, that's not atypical. That's not an outlier. That is our system. Now, you have appeal. And I was nodding as I saw the judge's outrageous rulings on not letting the jury hear the exceptions having to do with moving a house, around which the whole case revolved. And it was very clear that the jurors correctly saw that this was the crux of the case and the judge was keeping it from them. And I thought, OK, well, I'm sure uh, <clears throat> everyone realizes that Brian is going to win on appeal on those points. And you know, it's such a cold realization. Yeah, he's going to win on appeal, as he did, on except for a, a, a very extra peculiar third situation. He, he won an appeal on the two main things. But what cold comfort, literally cold, to be in prison in the meantime? What terribly cold comfort to know that you're going to win an appeal when this is happening to you in the meantime? And yeah, appeal worked out about the way it usually does. We have a pretty good court system as far as appeals, and they usually do get it right. And sure enough, the appeals court caught what was going on. And sure enough, as is also typical in our situation, uh, the higher level courts, the US Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court, did not intervene to remove the remaining injustice because when you're up at the highest level of appeal courts, you're not actually about rectifying individual injustice anymore. You're about keeping the law tidy. And I see that, and they can only address cases where there's an untidiness in the law. And there actually was in this case, because if you read the book, you'll find that the only count that was not overturned was something so weird that even the New Jersey authorities didn't understand the law correctly. Uh, the court could have tidied that up because other people, as uh, Brian puts it, um, uh, faced that same issue about ammunition. But they are unwilling to do everything for um, uh, every case that comes along. Well. The question that remains is what made the law so harsh and, and unreasonable in this instance, law enforcement? And he offers some very correct analysis about the incentives that judges and prosecutors, for example, face to be tough on crime. Uh, your career may be over in most 
American states as a judge or a prosecutor if you are seen as not being tough enough on crime. That's all completely true as far as it goes. And yet, it leaves unexplained why isn't law enforcement always unreasonable? Uh, I mean, we're all familiar with the uh, highway officer who stops you and lets you off with a warning, uh, perhaps because the officer sees you as part of the same community and realizes you'll be scared enough by the warning. Why didn't it happen in a case like this where the stuff was in the trunk why wasn't there a warning? Why, if they had to escalate from don't do this next time, why couldn't they have gone up to, all right, we're going to put out a bulletin, and if you're seen transporting in the future, uh, you know, you're in serious trouble. They could have gone up another level and confiscated the stuff. I mean, Lord knows our law enforcement agencies love confiscating valuable property. Uh, most of them have forfeiture programs that, that let them uh, get, get the benefits. What, so why, why so extraordinarily strict, even by our contemporary American standards? And I thought of this book when I was reading uh, a report, I think in the Wall Street Journal, of, uh, within the last month, of how it's done differently. You know, that we, we libertarians, when we argue for any sort of lenience or, or flexibility in the law, are used to people saying, oh, you're an anarchist, go back to Somalia. You don't, you don't believe in, in law enforcement. You know, the, the irony being that, of course, Somalia has tons of, you know, violent imposition of, of norms. The, uh, but, uh, but of course, as, as I'm saying, law enforcement has always known throughout human history that there are intermediate sanctions between taking the toughest possible hard line and doing nothing at all. And so this story I was going to tell was from um, U.S. Customs, where, um, sad as it may be, people returning from Europe are very often trying to smuggle delicious things in their luggage from, um, that you can get in Europe and that you can't get in the United States, like Italian cured meats and things. And so the customs officer at JFK was explaining, yeah, we, we know people do this. Um, what we do is, uh, when we're onto them, and we have ways of being onto them, we ask them, are you sure you haven't forgotten to declare something? And sometimes they'll hold out for two or three rounds, and then we'll get a little more specific. Are you sure you haven't forgotten to declare something from Italy, maybe? And uh, eventually, uh, virtually every single one of them um, uh, uh, fesses up, declares it, we confiscate it. They don't get to eat it. The law is enforced, but uh, you know, Im implicitly, this is better than having thousands of people prosecuted for what probably is a fairly serious federal crime of lying on your customs de uh, uh, declaration. So why does it work there, and yet it did not work in New Jersey? And I think that... Um, uh, the Attorney General's directive that um, he mentioned briefly in his speech and tells it at a bit more length here, the Attorney General of New Jersey and Milgram had put out a directive saying that the gun control laws had to be enforced stringently and uniformly. Um, she didn't use the word zero tolerance, and yet you could kind of read that into that. And isn't that interesting? Because Smuggling Italian salami isn't viewed moralistically the way gun control is. I, I, spent, I just spent 25 years living up in New York. I know how they uh, think about guns. I, I you know, almost thought about that my, myself, despite my belief in the Second Amendment, where I would be frightened at the very appearance of the word gun in an article. I mean, the, I've moved down here to uh, the, the, the kind of place um, uh, an hour and a half out of DC where people have their prom pictures with guns. But at the time, <clears throat> At the time, I was scared of the idea, oh my goodness, a gun in the same house with a child, I, I, you know, that may, maybe it being locked up in, uh, is, isn't enough uh, of, of a legal deterrent to that. And the gun control issue rouses this extraordinary moralism. Um, 
And these days you have to watch out when the government is applying law enforcement to effectively regulatory and especially moralistic regulatory issues. If there is an armed raid uh, and people are held without being allowed to call a lawyer for hours uh, at their farm, it, you know, it might be because they're selling raw milk or something. You know, it's, it's not because the farm is a transit uh, for, for uh, you know, international terrorism. Um, you may have seen the article a few months ago about that the FBI raided this compound. Once law enforcement gets involved, your farm becomes called a compound. And, um, and they had surrounded it, and, and they had uh, um, uh, just this massive, massive um, raid on this old Indiana guy who had, uh, you know, was known as a character in his locality because he had all this old stuff um, that he had been collecting for his whole life. Well, it turns out that there are federal laws under which some of that can be uh, seized and given back to Indian tribes, and others of it can be seized and to see whether or not it belongs to the government of some European country uh, and so forth. And he, he <coughs> so there he was in, so far as I could see, the biggest uh, federal law enforcement raid because you had a law that roused people's humanitarian instincts. And I got, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Okay. Um, and you see this again in this case because it's not just the moralism that is brought to gun control. Um, notice that there's also that domestic violence angle. One of the reasons why uh, police are now under orders, make an arrest if you can, uh, look for every charge that can be filed. They've also done this with domestic violence. And although, you know, strange as it is to think that either side was in danger of domestic violence when a boy argues back to his mother, although I actually think of my own childhood, it might, might, might have been a reality, but the, uh, there was clearly no domestic violence in this case, and yet uh, the guidelines go down. We are, to show that we are serious about domestic violence, I mean, you've heard of must-arrest policies, for example, uh, which are more often found uh, where, where it's a married couple that are arguing. But the, you have the pressure on police, uh, and it's not a pressure from, of typical law enforcement of which cases will stand up and, and which cases will bring us good repute in the community that we did this and which will bring us bad repute. It's a very different kind of pressure of uh, what will the newspapers say? Uh, you know, you could have saved a life if you had intervened and, and you know, taken the child away from their parent uh, when you didn't this time, or if you, if you had um, broken up the situation by searching the house and, and uh, putting everyone in handcuffs. Uh, if it could save even one child, and, you know, be on your guard when you can ever hear the phrase, if it could save even one child, because usually what is happening is that uh, law enforcement is being pushed into some area of human life where it had not been seen as, as sufficiently present so far. This, ha this all happens, so far as I could see, from what I think cops call a welfare check. Um, that where they check into a household because they're afraid that something might be wrong with someone there. And I'm going to revise the old Ronald Reagan line. The, the most frightening words in the English uh, language may be, I'm here from the government and I'm here on a welfare check. Um, so <clears throat> we can see already some of the bad consequences. We can see, for example, that if the consequence of lifting the phone receiver um, and pressing 911 even if you hang up, even if you change your mind and realize there was nothing wrong, just to have called brings massive police response to your house. Well, <clears throat> many people are going to take the lesson, I'd better stay away from 911. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, it could escalate, and right now uh, it, it's more likely we can control the situation without calling 911. What a wacky incentive to give people. Um, and 
this is where, and we talk a lot about the spread of criminalization at the, at the Cato Institute and how so many areas of human life uh, have been hit by criminal law that were once left to other sorts of social and, and legal remedies. Um, and the answer is that <clears throat> there may be limits, in fact there are natural limits, to how active the government can get when it's just trying to protect life and property because there's a finite number of threats to life and property. There are no limits to government's humanitarian ambitions. Watch out for those humanitarian ambitions. Um, and <clears throat> they remind me of one of my favorite quotes from Friedrich Nietzsche, which is, uh, distrust all in whom the urge to punish is strong. Thanks. Okay, we're going to open this up and, and take some of your questions now. Um, I just want to get a point of clarification from Brian uh, to see if my understanding of his case is correct. Um, Governor Christie intervened in your case, but he did not issue a full pardon. What he did was he commuted your sentence. So instead of serving seven years, you were released from prison for, for time served. And without a pardon, that left the legal criminal conviction in place. Then you went on to fight through the appellate courts, and they dismissed several of those charges. And there's one remaining, so that in the eyes of New Jersey law, you're still considered to be a, a convicted felon. And you're, and is that correct, or are you still fighting that? Or in in the eyes of federal law, yeah, um, I'm still a convicted felon. Okay, and what? What impact does that have on your life? What limitations and how does that legal status affect your life? Well, um, recently two things happened. A lot of my friends went out to vote and I couldn't join them. And my lease expired and my wife and I decided that we wanted to try and move into another place. So a few weeks before the lease expired and we let the landlord know that we were moving out, we submitted applications to a few different apartments and I was un unable to pass the background check. So even though I had the money and in some cases I offered to pay several months in advance uh, and I submitted the book and the commutation order, uh, it still wasn't enough. Uh, so right now, for example, we're living with her parents because places won't accept me as a tenant. Uh, I mean, obviously you can uh, kind of imagine what the repercussions are outside of those legal barriers, but professionally, I am a marketing and communications professional. And there are a heck of a lot of liberal individuals who run that industry. And it's uh, it can be incredibly challenging if I didn't have uh, a little entrepreneur inside of me, I don't know what I would be doing right now. Okay, thank you. Yes, in the back. Just wait a second for the microphone to arrive so that we can all hear your question, and please identify yourself and any affiliation you might have. Hi, my name is Scott Cassens with One Generation Away, and I'm just a little bit unclear. In that final matter that leaves you a convicted felon, uh, have you, all your appeals been exhausted uh, on that charge, or are they still underway? Yeah, so we appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and they denied to hear it. And then we appealed to SCOTUS, and SCOTUS also denied cert. SCOTUS and, is the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes. Uh, and that final outstanding conviction is illegal possession of hollow point ammunition. And the reason that the appellate division uh, didn't overturn that was because illegal possession of firearms has all of those exemptions that I talked about. 
So it's legal to take your, gu your guns from the place of purchase to your house, from your house to go to the shooting range, from your house to go to the hunting, or from one house to another when you're moving. Hollow points have all of the same exemptions, except it doesn't specifically say that you can take hollow point ammunition from one house to another. So in the appellate division's eyes, you are legally required to leave your hollow point ammunition at your previous residence when you move to a new house. It's absurd. Quit for kids. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. with the Pakistani spectator. And uh, my question is that I'm so sorry about this uh, hardship and ordeal you went through, and still you are going through. I wish you were a Muslim like myself. My first name is Muhammad. You were a brown man. It would be so easier for you to sue judges. And this is my question. These judges seem to have lost their conscience. Uh, were they white, black? I mean, I understand they were liberal, but liberalism is not a religion. So I just wonder about the race of those judges who really were determined to go after you. And my question is, can you sue judges in the United States? Thanks. So I'm not. Uh a constitutional lawyer, but I was told that there is a USC, 18 USC 1983, which is a deprivation of civil rights claim that you can make not against necessarily the government itself, but against agents of the state for depriving you of your civil rights. And there was uh, a lot of discussion about, about doing that, not necessarily to the judge, because the judge has, I believe, absolute immunity. Um, but we could be able to do that at least with the police department and possibly even the prosecutor's office. Um, and I think my lawyer was a little bit too excited about that prospect. And we appeared on Fox and Friends to discuss that possibility, I think with Steve Ducey. And that was before the appellate division came down with their decision uh, to uphold one of the uh, convictions. And we think there might have been, we don't know for certain, but there might have been an, an incentive for them to uphold one of the convictions so that they could justify all of the actions of the police and the prosecutor and the judge. Of course, that's only my speculation, but uh, as so long as they've up, upheld that, they've justified all of the actions. Do you want to say something? Yeah, the, um, the accidental wording of the ammunition ban in such a way as not to encompass uh, the interest of people moving house from one place to another was enough like an oversight that some courts might have, uh, particularly in the interest of the rule of lenity, might, might have read it as encompassed by uh, the others. The fact that they did not, um, it's hard for me to psychologize. I'd, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's very difficult for some for good practical reasons to sue prosecutors and judges, uh, even when they have handled cases poorly. Um, my instinct on this is that the correct way of resolving the rest of it is for the governor of the state of New Jersey to um, uh, issue a pardon. But if it's not requested by the uh, uh, person with the conviction, of course, that won't happen. Yes, sir. On, on the end. Yeah, Bill Bushker from DoSDoTell.com. Um, the question, I was just shocked at the gross, you know, abuse of the process by the judge and the prosecutors simply suppressing what obviously should have been considered legally 
as instructions, you know, to all the exemptions that the jury should have been told about the exemptions and the law. That the I thought I've been I was on a jury in Dallas one time for a weapons case, and back in the eighties, and we actually convicted someone. But we were given the entire law. You know, nothing was held from us. It's shocking that that would go on. That there wouldn't be severe consequences for a judge and for a prosecutor for that. That seems gratuitous abuse. And it is possible that technically you did violate one law, as you say, that may be possible, that one of them would have stood. But everything else, it's just shocking that there is so much political pressure over this weapons issue that prosecutors and and judges would behave this way. That is that the reason, just simply the political pressure? Well, in, every, in many of the cases that go to trial, attorneys typically do argue among themselves about what's the proper instruction that should be given to a jury. But what is extraordinary in Brian's case is where uh, the jury is sent off to deliberate and then three separate times they send out notes saying, can you give us more information and instruction on this moving exemption that we've heard about? And three separate times the judge sends them back without that information. That's, that's what's really extraordinary. Yeah. And this switch to point, as, as far as punishing the judge, um, the judge was already out of office for the reasons recited and had been reversed. Um, um, so to, uh, you know, it's un very unlikely that there would be any further action from the system. Uh, on the admission of uh, correct jury instructions, though, there is a, uh, it gets us into an area of professional responsibility for prosecutors because the fact is uh, prosecutors are supposed to represent both the interests of the state in obtaining convictions and also the wider interests of justice. And when those conflict, um, they cannot ignore the wider interests of justice. And it, certainly if I had been connected with the, that prosecutor's office, I would have said, look, the, you know, what the other side is asking for is reasonable. Uh, they, you know, let's uh, present a united front to the judge saying, you know, we only want to win this case uh, on the correct law. Um, uh, we don't want to win because of a miscarriage of justice. Why didn't the prosecutor's office do that? Is it because of the gun control pressure? Is it because of lack of professionalism for some other reason? I don't know. Okay, I'm afraid we have run out of time, but uh, please pick up a book on your way out, and Brian is going to make himself available to sign copies of the book for those who want that. Um, we will also be having a luncheon on the second floor, so everybody here is invited to join us up there. Please thank our panelists. <laughs>